listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 252 of Belaboured, our podcast about work, working, and the working class. Today, we're talking about the heat. Specifically, we're talking about the workers who are laboring in ridiculous temperatures to deliver your packages and what those workers are going to do about it. Before we get started, though, I want to thank everyone who has supported us financially over the past nine years, and all the rest of you who are supporting us in non-financial ways, too. But to remind you that we can only keep bringing you the labor journalism that you rely on, the interviews with labor leaders and rank and filers, historians and legal experts, with your support. We paywall nothing here because we want to make sure that our podcast is available to the widest audience possible and our paying supporters allow us to do that. You can support us at patreon.com slash belabored. Thank you very much. And now on to the news. Strike summer continues in England, and last week I made it out to the picket lines where British Telecom, BT workers who run telecommunications, mobile communication infrastructures, and broadband internet structure in Britain were on strike. While there, I caught up with Dave Ward, the General Secretary of the Communications Workers Union, which represents those workers as well as the ones at the Royal Mail, and asked him to tell me more about the strike, another big strike his union is planning for, and what the hell is going on with the Labor Party. It was a little bit windy on the picket line, so I apologize for some of the sound quality. So the dispute is about pay, uh, cost of living crisis that's hitting uh, not just the UK but across the world um, is impacting on members in a way that they're desperate. Um, and the company that we uh, are striking against today, uh, this is not a question about affordability and can they afford to give workers more. They've deliberately chosen a path um, to give all of the money uh, that they had, uh, a lot of it, to their shareholders and to line their own pockets on the board and the CEO. And to give your your listeners uh, a sort of example of those figures, so they made £1.3 billion last year. They uh, gave shareholders £753 million of that. Uh, the CEO of the company, his earnings went up by 32%. Um, and they've imposed, not negotiated, imposed uh, a pay rise on the workforce who didn't get a pay rise last year other than a bonus of what amounts to an average of about 4.8% when inflation is uh, under one measure that we use here in the UK is 118 With that, inflation projected to go even higher, and today's news that the Bank of England was raising interest rates Dave also noted that the same company, BT, has actually put up customers' prices in a 12-month period by over 22%. But the workers can't get a raise. So they're coining it in, uh, and they're just treating their workers with without contempt. Yeah, so this is, this is the first day of this strike here. We've had train workers on strike again this week, yeah. and you've taken a very successful strike vote at the Royal Mail. Yeah. So... Tell me sort of your take on, on what people have been calling hot strike summer. Well, my view is is that is, this is bigger than uh, what they're calling in the UK a summer of discontent. Yeah. This has to be the start of building a new social movement led by trade unions, led by community organisations who we work closely with, led by anybody who practices the values of collectivism. Yeah. 
And, you know, we believe that people here in the UK are saying enough's enough. They don't have any faith in the current mainstream political parties. Yeah. Uh, one of them is the Tory party. Um, and the other one is obviously, unfortunately, Labour, who yeah. seem to have left the playing field. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know what's happened this week, can you tell us a brief story of the, the internal dispute in the Labour Party right now? So a lot of trade unions in the UK uh, formed the Labour Party. It, it wasn't formed the other way around, as some of them sometimes think. So it's a, it's a party that, by its name, Labour, uh, should be standing up for working class people. Unfortunately, it's decided to uh, abandon working people uh, by starting to sack some of its own shadow front bench ministers um, for standing alongside workers, including uh, work people who came to our picket lines today. Uh, it's actually publicly sacked those people. Um, I think they'll pay the price for that. I think that at, at the end of this, when the reckoning comes, I think people will realise you can't be a political party and stand up for working people if you haven't got principles and if you haven't got policies. Collectivism through the trade unions. Yeah. We are talking now about trade unions um, offering forms of uh, action, collective action that all workers, whether they're in a union or not, mm-hmm. can take across the rest of the summer yeah. so that we build this movement. And that's what we're going to be focusing on, as well as our own members' dispute. The Labour Party's disappointing reaction to er, organized labour continued into Monday's second part of the BT strike with more Labour MPs heading to the picket lines in defiance of the leadership's ban, and with reports coming that they would be dressed down for doing so. Reporter Sienna Rogers quoted an unnamed union source, saying, Shadow Minister for Workers' Rights to be dressed down for standing up for workers' rights. But just in case you thought Labour was doing badly, then there's the Tories. So I asked Dave about the Conservative leadership candidate's discussion of banning strikes. What you've got in the Tory party uh, at the moment is two people uh, trying to become the next prime ministers of the UK. Two, both of them are ultra Thatcherite politicians, uh, taking us back in time. I, I think that, you know, it's incredible. If you're here in the UK today, people can't believe what they're seeing, that these two politicians are going at it hammer and tong, um, blaming each other for who's mismanaged the economy the most. And this is why this vital time when they're falling apart for Labour not to stand up for working people is just absolutely unforgivable. Yeah. Anything else you want our listeners to know about what's happening right now? Well, we're we're always in touch with uh, American trade unions in in our, let me say hello to, if if he listens to this, Brother Demonstein from the APWU. Unfortunately, I was due to go over and speak at a conference, but because of these disputes, I couldn't. I think there's some fantastic stuff going on in America in the labour movement. Um, Really inspiring stuff around Amazon and uh, what I know the APWU and lots of other trade unions, the Teamsters and that have been doing. This is a time for trade union-led fightbacks. And I think people are ready to follow us, not just here in the UK, but across the world. And that was Dave Ward of the Communications Workers Union, fresh from the BT picket lines. You can find out more about the BT strikes and everything else British Labour at dissentmagazine.org. 
We've seen union drives crop up in some unlikely workplaces over the past year, from Amazon warehouses to the Apple store. And last week in Hadley, Massachusetts, we saw one of the biggest union breakthroughs yet at a storied brand that is known for being non-union, Trader Joe's. There have been efforts to organize at Trader Joe's over the years, and especially during the pandemic, when workers started speaking out against unsafe working conditions. But this quirky hipster grocery chain, which prides itself on its extremely cheerful and enthusiastic staff, has managed to thwart those efforts until now. The Hadley store was the first of about 500 Trader Joe's stores across the country to go union by a vote of 45 to 31. Trader Joe's workers say they are organizing in response to what they see as a steady erosion of working conditions over the years, including worries about benefits cuts, a lack of workers' say in how their workplaces are run, and safety issues amid the pandemic. Trader Joe's, like many other grocery chains, created extra benefits and protections for workers during the height of the pandemic, such as an hourly pay raise to compensate for the added health risks on the job. But these provisions were eventually dropped last year after vaccines became available. It remains to be seen whether the Hadley victory will be replicated in other TJ stores, so we don't know if it'll go viral the way the Starbucks union victory in Buffalo did. But there are two upcoming elections at other Trader Joe's stores, one in Minneapolis and the other in Denver. And Trader Joe's is using the standard tactics to thwart the unions, trying to dissuade workers with various union-busting talking points, so you know corporate is taking this seriously. I spoke to Sarah Beth Ryther, a worker organizer at the Minneapolis store, about what it's been like organizing her co-workers on the eve of the election. Trader Joe's has historically been a really awesome company to work at, and they've given their workers really good benefits and you know there's been all sorts of stuff in the news and um, chatter amongst employees about how Trader Joe's is a really great place to work but with the pandemic and kind of um, changes within the corporate uh, side of Trader Joe's things have eroded over the years and it's led to Trader Joe's employees becoming more unhappy than they were before. Hadley was the first store that unionized. Can you uh, can you talk about? I, I don't know how how much you've been communicating with um, the workers there since uh, since they had the vote. But um, in your mind, why was that store maybe ready to be the first? first one, because we know there have been efforts to organize at Trader Joe's, uh, certainly throughout the pandemic and even before that. So why now? Yeah, I think it's just finally time. And I think that there, especially at the Hadley store, many of their employees have worked at the store for a really, really long period of time. And many members of their organizing committee had worked there 15 plus years. So I think that um, they've really been able to see the way that Trader Joe's corporate has has changed over time and felt really frustrated that they weren't being heard. And that led to their organizing. And it's, it's really awesome to see all of the organizing that's going around across the country with Starbucks, with Amazon, with all of these corporations, these employees standing up uh, and demanding that their working conditions be better. For the Minneapolis store, 
we actually were organizing independently and separately. We had no idea that Hadley was organizing. And so when Hadley uh, became public with their intent to unionize in May, we saw it on the news and it was so exciting and so energizing for us. We were a few months behind, but it was really, really cool to see that somebody, workers across the country had reached the same conclusion that we did, that a union would protect us in ways that Trader Joe's corporate uh, hasn't. Yeah. So I think, you know, to people viewing things sort of from the outside, you might look at all these Starbucks's kind of organizing um, at this massive scale across the country and uh, different Trader Joe's stores having votes quite close to each other. They might think it's um, fairly coordinated. Um, but uh, can you can you talk about the, the type of organizing that that has gone into um, the staff at your store and and have you been in communication with? Um, I, I know you said you just recently found out about the Hadley store, but um, now that you know about each other, like, are, are there efforts to kind of um, communicate amongst the workers across different stores and uh, think about strategy together um, or talk about, you know, best practices and things like that? Absolutely. So when we started organizing, we really wanted to, at Min- in Minneapolis, we really wanted to do our homework. And so we reached out to a lot of union folks, both in um, you know grocery store unions and other unions, just to kind of understand what the landscape looked like. And we were at that point of deciding whether we we're going to join XYZ union or be independent when Hadley announced. And it became clear very quickly that uh, they shared our same values. So when we started talking to the folks at Hadley, it felt like they were our older siblings, that they really had been, so many of them had been there for so many years, and we really just uh, were, they were and and still are teaching us so much. And and as to your comment about the other other stores, I think that's, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to welcome our fellow crew members from other stores into this new independent and autonomous union community and create net, a network. Um, so that's our goal. That was Sarah Beth Ryther, a worker organizer at Trader Joe's in Minneapolis. For the first time in over 30 years, journalists at Wire Service Reuters walked off the job this Thursday. Nearly 300 journalists, photographers, videographers, copy editors, producers, and technicians who are members of the News Guild took action, according to a Guild release. Quote, to protest management's offer of a guaranteed annual wage increase of only 1%, which would effectively mean a pay cut given the soaring cost of living. The company's profits are at record highs. Since the end of 2017, the company's cash from operating activities has totaled about $6.3 billion, and its dividend has risen by nearly 29%. Yet management's latest offer, in addition to the 1% guaranteed wage increase, also includes zero retroactive pay for the nearly two and a half years since its last general wage increase in March 2020. The miserly pay offer is particularly hard to swallow for journalists who have found themselves in the line of fire like never before in recent years, be it reporting on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis, the war in Ukraine, or extreme climate events. 
Meanwhile, the company's majority owner and billionaire chairperson, David Thompson, third Baron Thompson of Fleet, is one of the world's richest people. His family's wealth has increased by more than $17 billion since journalists last received a general wage increase in March of 2020. End quote. As an aside, since I am, of course, still reporting from England, I have been laughing at the Tories referring to union barons in the press alongside the more familiar and obviously still wrong union boss. But it's pretty hilarious in this case that the boss here is an actual baron. So anyway... According to Bloomberg, quote, Reuters employees timed Thursday's walkout to coincide with the company's second quarter earnings announcement, hoping to maximize attention from management and customers. While one-day strikes often do more to impact companies' public image than their operations, the Guild said it expects the strike to disrupt Reuters' news-gathering work by forcing management to rely on reporters abroad or editors to cover the day's events, end quote. Energy reporter Tim McLaughlin a member of the union's bargaining committee, told Bloomberg, In 2020, we were all asked to step up. Everyone just rose to the occasion, and we thought, wrongly as it turns out, that we would get something in return. End quote. In other words, the Reuters reporters are feeling the same crunch as the RMT workers you heard from last episode, or the Nabisco workers you heard in our Labor Notes episode, or the teachers, or pretty much all of the so-called essential workers. Companies that raked in money while pushing everyone to keep working in a pandemic, companies that cried poverty and couldn't give raises during that said pandemic, are now having a hard time convincing their employees that they have no money because we can all read a profit and loss statement. And just like those other workers, the reporters are willing to strike to make their point. The mental health workers at the California Healthcare Corporation, Kaiser Permanente, have announced plans for an open-ended strike this month. According to the National Union of Healthcare Workers, or NUHW, as many as 2,000 staff members in Northern California, including psychologists, therapists, chemical dependency counselors, and social workers, will be withholding their services starting August 15th. The first ever open-ended strike by the union comes in response to an unprecedented crisis in the mental health care infrastructure, as demands for therapeutic services rises and people are experiencing heightened levels of stress and anxiety. NUHW argues that Kaiser Permanente has kept its clinics hugely understaffed, despite the intensified demand, and despite its $8.1 billion in profits last year. According to the union, quote, in Northern California, Kaiser staffs approximately one full-time equivalent mental health clinician for every 2,600 members. As a result, patients who should receive therapy every week or two weeks are waiting months just to start their therapy regimens, and between four to eight weeks between appointments, in violation of state parity laws and clinical guidelines, unquote. This crisis isn't exactly new. Back in 2013, Kaiser was fined $4 million by the California Department of Managed Health Care over its excessive waiting periods and other violations. And last May, the agency announced an investigation into Kaiser's levels of care and the timeliness of their appointments, among other issues, after the agency saw a 20% rise in complaints about Kaiser in 2020 and 2021. The problems are compounded by an unacceptable turnover rate, according to the union. NUHW cites a rise in the annual turnover between 2020 and 22 from 8% to 12%. In a statement announcing the strike, NUHW stated that the company, quote, refuses to adequately invest in additional staff, take steps to reduce the burnout of current employees, and do what is necessary to bring its mental health clinics into parity with other health services that the HMO provides, unquote. The union also claims that it was driven to strike, quote, after a year of contract negotiations in which Kaiser has rejected proposals aimed at increasing staffing and improving access to care, unquote. 
Kaiser, meanwhile, has dismissed the strike plans as a, quote, bargaining tactic and has claimed that the union leaders, quote, have chosen to strike when we were close to an agreement, unquote, according to Capital and Maine. The strike may certainly be strategic for the union, but the mental health emergency that the clinicians are facing is definitely real. Capital and Maine reported that the crunch at Kaiser is happening in the context of a pandemic-induced mental health crisis nationwide. Quote, there has been a worldwide increase in patients reporting they are suffering from stress, anxiety, and depression. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry declared a, quote, national state of emergency, unquote, over the dramatic rise in families seeking urgent mental health care for their children. The 2,000 potential strikers represent just one chunk of Kaiser's entire mental health care workforce just those based in Northern California. Workers at Kaiser's facilities in Southern California are actually barred from striking in their contract, even though they're also represented by the NUHW. In the strike announcement, Shay Loftus, a psychologist in Kaiser's Napa Solano region, stated, quote, we're not willing to be part of a system that disrespects the work we do and prevents us from providing ethical care. Kaiser has no excuse to continue treating mental health care as a separate and unequal service, and we're going to keep striking until that changes, unquote. The militancy that we're seeing at Kaiser signals the flip side of the essential worker phenomenon. While it may have seemed that healthcare workers were being held up as heroes during the pandemic, we now see that the parts of the system that were always neglected and undervalued have seen their suffering compounded by the global public health crisis. As temperatures reach well into the triple digits, you might want to stay inside and do all your shopping online so you don't have to go out in the sweltering heat. But somebody's got to deliver those packages, and often it's a UPS driver, chugging through the heat wave in that signature brown truck. And you might be surprised to learn that those trucks are not air-conditioned. That's why UPS workers have taken to social media to post pictures of thermometer readings from inside their unbearably hot vehicles, sometimes reaching well over 110 degrees Fahrenheit. According to the Teamsters, who represent some 350,000 full- and part-time UPS workers nationwide, workers have been getting sick and hospitalized from heat-related illnesses at an alarming rate amid this year's heat waves. The safety concerns are only going to get worse as climate change intensifies, and they're also exacerbated by a lack of federal occupational safety standards for heat, which affects not just delivery drivers, but also farm workers, construction workers, and anybody who labors outdoors. This latest spate of heat waves has hit UPS workers just as they prepare to renegotiate a huge new labor contract next year. In the immediate term, the workers are demanding more safety protections, such as fans in all the trucks, and more staff to reduce individual workloads. They're also looking for long-term changes to the high-pressure quotas and surveillance that workers are subjected to daily. I spoke with Basil Darling, a Teamsters local 804 shop steward and UPS driver based in New York City, about the challenges of working through the heat wave and what he hopes the union can change. Why don't you start by talking about what a typical day at work for you and your coworkers is like, um, especially during this summer in the middle of a heat wave? Okay, so UPS, just like many other companies in this industry, it's all based off of warehousing. And because it's a warehouse, these places are not 100% equipped with adequate cooling. So what happens is the main areas, like the offices or where the equipment is kept, those are always under AC. But the conditions where the workers are are not well ventilated nor are there resources to keep us cool. Case in point, in my building, we've been fighting for a long time. We only have two ice machines, 
One broke the other day, and now we're down to one with a facility that has well over 500 people. These are the kind of conditions you're forced to work in and pleading with them to, hey, two, $3,000 machine to help assist with keeping people regulated to cool or some way of cooling down, it becomes a battle. And that's just in the warehouse. Now, I myself am a driver and our offices are the brown truck. And we're very happy to service the community. But when we're out in the heat, that's one issue. The other issue is the inside where the packages are kept that we have to constantly go and get the packages to deliver. It's like an oven. And if it's 100 degrees outside, it's 130 or better on the inside. So every time we go to open that bulkhead door, go inside for a period of time to select the packages for that delivery, we're now being exposed to an extreme temperatures and repeated over and over during the course of the day. It's fatiguing, obviously, but then it also puts people at other health issues. And that's what we're running into right now. I understand that there were a few incidents just recently with people being injured by the heat or getting sick just in the New York area. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, personally, I have a member who does have other issues. The weather compounded it, and I personally had to drop him off to a hospital. It was to the point where he was cramping up, he couldn't continue, and the work had to stop. I continued with his work for him, but after dropping him to a hospital. There was also an incident with, uh, I think, the safety committee um, at the local. Can you talk about what went down with that and what the situation currently is in terms of um, discussing these issues or raising these issues with the management? Well, we have put in numerous letters, grievances, of course, in different facilities in regards to the conditions, and it falls on deaf ears. There is an incident that has now hit the media where they say we can request fans for the truck, and we put it in black and white. We need fans. And the response is, that's a corporate decision. So no matter what the law is, if it's an OSHA, if it's a this or that, the providing some form of comfort or providing a better workplace, which our workplace is the truck, they're not accommodating to, and it's an ongoing battle. They'll use linguistics to find their way in and out of providing us the bare minimum of what the state requires. And I'll expand on that for a second. So if your truck doesn't have heat, they're not worried about that. But the state law says that the defroster should work. Now, for some people who understand the defroster must work with heat, so if you say you need the defroster to work, then they'll fix it. But you tell somebody there's no heat, they're not really that worried about the truck. But to meet the minimum state requirement, that is what they'll do. I think with the news stories that have come out about overheating in UPS trucks, many people will be puzzled or shocked as to why there has never been air conditioning in the trucks or the warehouses for that matter. Why is it that UPS and maybe some other companies that are in this field as well have been able to get away with that? It seems like AC is just a basic thing that 
would be in a truck that's running all the time. Well, I'll be fair and say that these companies have been around, obviously, for more than 50 years. Uh, The standard of the work conditions weren't exactly the greatest then either. But when you add into the current status of climate change, it has a very big impact on how we work outdoors. So these companies have to adjust and work with the times. I mean, just recently, we heard in Europe they had to stop the planes. Trains had to stop just due to the temperature. So if the vehicles are not able to work in this condition, why do you expect a human being to work in these extreme conditions for prolonged uh, periods of time and then think it's okay for them to keep doing it again all week, all summer? And hey, just drink water because that's what everyone says. Just drink water. We trained them how to work in the heat. No one's trained to work in triple digits. And again, that's outside. Our job requires us to deliver packages which are stored in the back of the truck with those temperatures are extremely much higher. Some people have even recorded up to 160 degrees. Is there a point at which you think workers will just sort of say, we can't work in these conditions and just stop? Well, I mean... I'm middle age and watching how things have happened in the past with laborers who work outdoors till now, you see a lot of people do not want outdoor jobs. The older people are in the zone for retirement and they're not replacing them as fast enough. And we're going to have an issue going forward. It doesn't matter if it's the MTA, the garbage man, whatever it is where outdoor conditions are not going to be met for their liking. They're not going to do it. So people like myself, I don't know what the future is for a company like this if they don't try to at least meet us halfway, do something that would trigger people to say, you know what, at least they're trying. I had a suggestion with one of my business agents. We wear brown. Okay, well, I'll throw a bone to the company. Why don't you make a lighter brown shirt, which reflects some of the sunlight and at least keeps the guy a little bit cooler? It's a start. It's not going to fix everything, but you know, maybe that can start the dialogue with other things that we can do, which keeps them in business. We don't want them to go under, but make it look like you're trying to help the employee. I was also just thinking about, you know, in the past, safety strikes are something that workers have engaged in at various workplaces. And that's because it's a matter of safety. It's, um, it's been seen as something that is kind of an emergency. I know that during COVID, there were walkouts and, and things of that nature because people felt unsafe at work. Do you think the heat could ever get to that point? I do believe so. I mean, our brothers and sisters that work in Arizona, uh, California, Florida, we are all impacted. And I mean, just about two weeks ago, we had triple digits already. So imagine what next year brings. And again, with the conversation of global change, we're having fires at enormous rates that are killing out all the trees, leaving the land barren. What does that say for the future? That means it's going to keep getting hotter. And I don't know anyone who's going to want to go outside in 120 degrees just to do anything. Or the ones who are 
stuck in those jobs are probably going to be the ones who are least able to resist these conditions or advocate for better ones. So in terms of what UPS workers are demanding now, is the heat issue going to come into play when you sit down to negotiate a new contract? It definitely is going to come up. And again, this is not just for the drivers. These are those who work in the warehouses, our part-timers and our full-timers, because we need better work conditions. And if nothing else, if UPS doesn't want to step up to the plate, I think that we should have our local leaders and those at the top. I mean, the federal government has stepped in many times when it comes to regulations of everything else. Why wouldn't you want the people who work here to be treated with dignity and respect and be able to go home at the end of the day? I mean, every business has had a faux pas or issue. Nothing's perfect. But when your people are dying literally at work because they're being told that they can't take a break, or if they do take a break, they're going to be reprimanded and you're more worried about being scared of a manager than taking care of your own health. That's a problem. And it doesn't matter what industry you work in, we're not being treated as human beings. I did have a very good older member talk to me, and he says it all the time, and and it's funny. He said, when they do negotiations, I want the guy who negotiate for the horses. Because if the animals don't have to go outside in extreme heat, why do we? This, of course, points to the bigger issue in terms of regulations related to heat, which is the fact that there kind of are none in terms of OSHA standards. Um, Occupational Safety and Health Administration has kind of been grappling with this issue for years, but um, there currently really isn't a way for OSHA to effectively enforce any kind of reasonable standard when it comes to heat. Like you kind of have to wait for workers to like, you know, get hospitalized or, or die, which is pretty, pretty sad situation considering what a multi-billion dollar industry logistics is. Right. You're correct. I try to dabble in the news. I'm, I'm not perfect, but if I recall, I believe there was a bill for the workers that went on the desk of Biden or just before his administration took place. And it was about work conditions and especially those who work, you know, in extreme bad conditions. And it's up to them to say, hey, enough is enough. And if we're going to treat the people who work here in this country with dignity and respect, it starts from the top. These businesses could only get away with what they're allowed to get away with. And again, here we go to that conversation of linguistics. If we're going to meet the minimum requirement because no one's watching us or they say, all I have to do is this, then they're going to do the bare minimum. They're making their money. They brag how much they make in a quarter, what their profits are. And that's great. I like that. You are a business. But when do you give back to the people who make that money? Jeff Bezos bragged that he was able to go to space based on his customers and his workers. That's sad. Like space is not that important, but thank you. So if that's the thanks, show your thanks and give it back to the people who help you get where you are. What are some other things that you are looking to have addressed in the negotiations I know that UPS workers have, in recent years, raised concerns about just the overall pace of work and the kind of pressure you're under to 
deliver as many packages as possible within a certain time frame. So can you talk about how those pressures are going to be managed and what you'd like to see change maybe for you and your coworkers? Well, I do know that not every work assignment or job is the same. So some people would be able to do a little bit more than others. Of course, in this New York City area, it's a little bit congested, but it's a lot of stress, traffic, construction, whatever have you. But it comes up to the individual. You know, I myself, I'm a union rep. I try to advise people all the time. I tell them, read their union contract. because. You can't direct the workforce, but you can tell people, hey, this is what your rights are. You're well within your right if you do this. If you do have a question, obviously ask. And more people are willing to push that aside in the one word called fear. They go to work in fear. They're worried about somebody overly supervising or watching them, and it creates them to work unsafe just because they're worried about what they're going to say. What is the boss thinking? Is he going to fire me? It's like, you don't, you shouldn't have to go to work with that kind of stress. You should be able to go in and focus. And if you do have a full par and they want to pull you aside and talk to you, I get it. But to constantly work in fear is putting people in a situation to work dangerously. They make bad judgment calls and that's where things happen. Uh, Speaking of fear, which seems like kind of a running theme in this industry, (laughs) in both UPS and Amazon, I think workers have talked about how they feel like they're constantly under surveillance, different ways that the management has of tracking workers and keeping tabs on their performance. Can you talk about what that's like? Uh, How does it affect the experience of work every day? And is there a way that that could be limited in a contract. Well, I like that word limited because that's what it does come down to. Contractually, a lot of language has to be less vague and more specific because at that point, it allows the company to manipulate it for their own liking. So in the case of harassment, I don't have a route, but there are drivers who do have a set area that they work in. And the company has this thing called a SPOR. I can't tell you what the acronym is, but basically they want you to maintain a number. So if they say you can do 13 stops an hour and you came in Tuesday and you did 10, hey, what happened yesterday? What do you mean? You're supposed to maintain 13. You did 10. Okay, well, I was out there working. They don't care what happened yesterday. They care about a number and they're chasing numbers on a sheet of paper, not taking in consideration the changing conditions that we work in. Maybe there was a fire. The guy couldn't finish. Maybe there was an issue and he was stuck in traffic. But if he doesn't keep that number, he's not performing to the standard that they want. And this is indoctrinated in a lot of people in how they condition themselves to do the job which again goes back to the safety issue and everything else. And just overall, how they talk to you, how you present yourself to somebody in a manner where you're having a general dialogue like we are versus one that's um, condescending and always trying to get the person to motivate them to move faster. It has nothing to do with safety. Again, it's always about numbers. 
Is there anything else um, that you would like to see addressed in the upcoming contract negotiations? Um, Maybe things that weren't addressed in the last round. I think I remember there was a contract vote that was quite contentious. (laughs) So in terms of how workers feel about the current contract and what they'd like to see changed, uh, what else would you like to see addressed? Well, we had a two-thirds vote that was voted down. Um, There are certain things that preempted are working in our favor. And with the new IBT president coming on board, it's bringing a lot more life back to the membership. We had Hoffa, who was in power for a long time, and it made the members very stagnant. They felt there was never going to be change. It's just the same old thing. And now that we are getting change, the hope is that the demands that we're putting out, which is reasonable, the company will bend and obviously not. He is using the word strike, that that's what we'll have to do to let them come to the terms of what we need. If there's no other way, that would be the way. But as of right now, all of us, part-timers, full-timers, we must stick together. We must have solidarity. The inside conditions are just as bad. They have hundreds of packages going down the belt at the same time. Sometimes one person is loading three to five different trucks, and each truck could have up to 200 packages each. So it's very intense, very laborious, and these people are being mistreated and, in my opinion, very underpaid. You talk about the new leadership and how there's sort of more energy. I think in general, over the past year or so, there's sort of been a surprising resurgence in terms of labor organizing, you know, at some businesses where people might not have expected it to come up, like Starbucks. And this summer, there's been a lot of action in shipping and transport and logistics, everything from Amazon workers to the ILWU and rail workers in Britain. So how do you feel going into contract negotiations under a new leadership In this broader context of organized labor today, UPS has one of the largest unions, if not the largest in North America, right? So this union has a pretty powerful position. How do you want the union going forward to fit into this new kind of labor landscape that we're looking at? I, in my opinion, feel like this is the time for the restart button. Again, the go along, get along it happened, it's over with. And we just have to now push for a new agenda and start fresh. One that brings back the dignity and the respect for the worker and for us to actually be able to communicate within reason and make the necessary accommodations. Again, we're talking about companies making billions with a B, not the millions that they used to make a year or in a quarter they're making billions. So it's not impossible for them to run their operation and still move into the newer times that address the issues and concerns of the people. You hear them say it all the time, they're PR people, they're concerned, they're this, they're that. Well, you don't say it, you show it. And it's like a slogan. You can say it over and over and over again, but the words are empty when you don't have the true nature of caring. You know, You can say, I'll cut you a check. Yeah, but the check isn't the issue. You know, come down and see the conditions yourself. 
Come down, talk to the people who work and do the job for you. And I feel that the more these companies have gone public on the stock exchange, they're more worried about their shareholders. I mean, we do know that's what they're worried about. But to turn that profit, at what cost are you doing it? So you're going to go back to work tomorrow and and probably have to try to deal with keeping your coworkers safe. What advice would you have for people listening to this podcast who may be delivery workers, who may work in a warehouse? One, know your rights. It doesn't matter if you're a union worker or not. You should always know your rights. Two, don't be afraid to speak up. People are always worried about who's going to say what, but there's an old saying, closed mouths don't get fed. So if you're going to sit there and acknowledge a problem and don't address the problem, you're equally a part of the problem. So we all need to be a part of the solution and just think, if we don't fight for what's right, are we going to leave these businesses and jobs in the hands of the next generation in a better state or in a worse state? Is there anything else you want to add? Upcoming actions. Um, I know that the Teamsters had an event in anticipation of the coming contract fight. So anything else you want to leave our listeners with? We did have today a rally letting the company know that basically they're on notice in a year that we may end up going on strike if they don't meet our demands. And we love our customers and we want to service them. And we're just asking for them to do their part so we can have better work conditions. And, you know, think about your UPS driver when he's out there in the heat, because <laughs> if you were to give him a bottle of water, I wouldn't think he wasn't one to take it. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Basil Darling, a Teamsters Local 804 shop steward and UPS driver. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. So I swear I'm not using this piece because it cites me, but because I think it's a great expansion of the question of the story of the family business. It's titled All in the Family, Amy's Kitchen and America's Shadow Workforce by Eric Baker at The Drift Magazine. We've talked before about B Corps and do-gooder brands with crap labor politics on this show, and it pretty much never shocks me at this point to hear that these companies are awful to their workers. So Amy's Kitchen is the U.S.'s largest manufacturer of organic vegetarian frozen food. Thank TV dinners for the upwardly mobile Whole Foods shopper if you have somehow missed their existence. Baker writes that, quote, its founders met on a spiritual retreat in India in the late 1970s, and once the frozen pot pie money started rolling in, they helped to establish Sonoma County's official outpost for the Indian new religious movement, Science of the Soul. Amy's base is in Santa Rosa in Northern California, an eco-friendly, homey little town in wine country that seems maybe too good to be true. But Baker writes, quote, Santa Rosa's chief asset for Amy's, however, is neither its small-town charm nor its eco-friendly ethos. It is its sizable population of low-income immigrant workers, concentrated on the city's west side and primarily hailing from Mexico. Women from this community comprise the overwhelming majority of the workforce at Amy's two Santa Rosa plants, the anchor of its manufacturing operations for over two decades. And they report treatment that flies in the face of the progressive values that Amy's touts in its public branding. 
low pay, meager benefits, grueling working conditions, lack safety protections, and a culture of surveillance and intimidation that is designed to discourage these precarious workers from organizing to demand better. End quote. And of course, in a very familiar narrative to belabored listeners and anybody who's read anything I've written for the last four years, the company tells a really nice story about its workplace that isn't anything close to reality. Baker continues, quote, Like many corporations today, especially but by no means exclusively those that are privately owned, Amy's likes to imagine itself as a family. The company is named after the daughter of co-founders Andy and Rachel Berliner, and the official narrative depicts the venture as the natural outgrowth of the couple's quest to obtain high-quality vegetarian meals for Amy when she was a child. We still make our food like we're in our personal kitchen, the Berliners claim. It's just on a bigger scale. If that's the case, one shudders to imagine what goes on in the Berliner's personal kitchen, end quote. According to worker Maricruz Mesa, who actually does that cooking, I would never treat my family like this. Meza worked at Amy's for eight years, only getting tiny raises until last year when women in the production department had a work stoppage and got a $2 increase per hour. Baker writes, quote, Each biweekly pay period, Meza has to fork over $200 to pay the premium on the company health insurance plan. Even so, she's amassed significant bills caring for herself and her children. Collections agencies have started to harass her, and her credit score has plummeted. She presented her bills to Amy's HR as evidence of the inadequacy of the company's healthcare benefits and brought the issue up in a company Q&A with Andy Berliner. He told her that he'd also had medical procedures that weren't covered by insurance and advised her to do what he'd done, pay in cash and then petition the insurance provider for reimbursement. Mezzo was floored. Somehow Berliner didn't understand that precisely because of his company's stingy compensation and benefits, she did not have thousands of dollars lying around to pay medical bills at a moment's notice. End quote. Yeah. The workers complain of repetitive stress injuries and injuries from heavy lifting and no accommodation when they are hurt on the job. A predominantly female immigrant workforce, they also report favoritism from managers depending on which country they came to the U.S. from. And then there's the dreaded point system. Baker explains, quote, The point system is the plant's all-in-one disciplinary regime. Workers accrue points for tardiness or missed work, even if they've notified management in advance. A half point if you're five minutes late, a full point for 30 minutes, two points for being two hours late without advance notice or for missing a shift entirely after exhausting one's paid time off with or without notice, and six points for missing work without calling in. Mendoza has four hours of paid time off during each biweekly pay period, after which she gets slapped with points. For years, workers who accrued nine points were automatically terminated. That threshold was eventually raised to 15 points because so many people were blowing past the nine-point mark. End quote. When worker Irene Mendoza tested positive for COVID, Baker writes, quote, The company's response was a mixture of denial and blame. Mendoza was told that she couldn't have picked up the virus at the facility, even though no one else in her household had the virus. Managers began publicly posting the names of workers who'd gotten sick as if it was their fault. Workers who came down with COVID were still given points if they'd already used up their sick leave and would presumably be fired if they were to exceed the 15-point threshold. This ruthless quantitative logic embodies the single-minded focus on maximizing productivity that governs every aspect of operations at the Amy's plant, end quote. As Baker points out, the ideal of the friendly, family-like workplace is not at all limited to white-collar work, and it's often concealing much harsher conditions when that work is manufacturing, food prep, or logistics. 
and the workers who do the grunt work, you know, the actual production, are the furthest away from the idealized founders who might be lovely people when they come in for a chat, but have no idea, as Berliner proved, what the conditions of their workforce actually look like in reality. The reality, of course, is that even a B Corp is still a corporation first, and as we've discussed on this show a million times, even nonprofits still struggle with the same sorts of pressures to maximize output as other capitalist firms, even if profits are not actually what's being produced. In other words, no matter how nice you pretend to be, work is still work and it sucks. And in this case, the obsession with the ideal of family just underscores the fact that, well, the family too is a workplace where a lot of unevenly distributed gendered work happens, just like in Amy's kitchen. My pick for ARG is Black Farmers in Arkansas Still Seek Justice a Century After the Elaine Massacre by Wesley Brown in Civil Eats. This is, at first glance, not a labor story per se, but it does depict the living aftermath of historical dispossession that has spanned generations in the Deep South, and it weaves together strands of racial violence, economic justice, reparations, social loss, and solidarity for a community of Black farmers. For a small window of time after the Civil War, Black farm labor, which had of course historically been exploited through slavery, was partially transformed into opportunities for those farmers to own the land that they had always worked. Some of these farming communities flourished through the early 1900s, when Black land ownership peaked at an estimated 16 million acres nationwide. Then, these growing pockets of Black wealth started to collapse, starting with a rash of anti-Black mass violence in the wake of World War I. While many people are aware of the Tulsa massacre that occurred in 1921 and before that Chicago's Red Summer, famous instances of white mob violence against Black people that, in the case of Tulsa, ended up destroying a very prosperous Black community, I imagine fewer people know about the Elaine Massacre. Brown highlights the Elaine Massacre of 1919 as a lesser-known disaster that was actually, quote, by far the deadliest racial confrontation in Arkansas and possibly the bloodiest racial conflict in U.S. history, unquote. As Brown describes it, quote, the events in Elaine almost 103 years ago stemmed from the state's deepest roots of white supremacy, tense race relations, and growing concerns about labor unions. In September 1919, a shooting incident that occurred at a meeting of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union, a Black-led organization that sought to improve life for Black farmers and communities in the state, escalated into mob violence by white people in Elaine and the surrounding area, unquote. So here we have a progressive movement of Black farmers trying to assert control of their land and their economic futures. The Progressive Farmers and Household Union, which claimed as many as 20 chapters in Arkansas at its peak, was founded by sharecropper and railroad worker Robert Lee Hill, who had little formal education but was inspired by the organizing models of Black mutual aid groups and the international trade union movement. In addition to trying to advance the livelihoods of black farmers, the union came to organize many black veterans who became outraged at the discrimination they faced after returning home from the war. The union also mobilized black women to stop working as domestic servants for white households and hired attorneys to win stolen back wages for sharecroppers. Naturally, all this political activism triggered a vicious backlash. The Lane Massacre resulted in untold numbers of murders of black people. And then the slower burning crisis came. White farmers and local and state laws conspired to legitimize this dispossession over the years by systematically taking the land. Brown writes, quote, land was taken through outright theft, intimidation, violence, and fraudulent property records, with the end result of robbing generations of black families from the inherited wealth that comes from land ownership. And at a time when the current administration has committed to advancing racial equity and efforts to provide debt relief to black farmers have been stymied by racist lawsuits, 
the scale of violent land theft is coming to light in a powerful, galvanizing way, unquote. Throughout the South, Black families' land rights could easily be stripped, thanks in large part to what's called heirs' property law, in which family land gets divided into increasingly tiny fractions over the generations when the land that was passed down did not have a will or deed to prove legal ownership. This process has contributed to the tremendous loss of Black-owned land over the course of the 20th century and has become one of the core issues in the ongoing debate over reparations. While it might not seem like it on the surface, buried in all this complex racial and legal history in Arkansas is a labor story. This is fundamentally about the journey of Southern Blacks who once worked as enslaved laborers, then as tenant farmers and sharecroppers, and then finally as an emerging class of landowners. And when they joined the Progressive Farmers and Household Union, they were organizing around the principle of redeeming their labor, driven by an ethos of communalism that subverted the racist social hierarchy and structural oppression that had hampered their economic emancipation. This is also a labor story in that the pattern of racial terrorism that dispossessed so many Black families in the South helped spur the Great Migration, the exodus of several million Black people from the South to the North to escape violence and poverty and to seek better industrial jobs in Northern cities. When recounting this history of dispossessed Black farmers in the South, we can see the roots of the Black working class in cities like Chicago and New York. We can discern parallels between the racial strife in the South and the fight against segregation and discrimination in cities across the country, and parallels between the progressive farmers movement in Arkansas and the civic mobilization of working class Blacks in places like Los Angeles and Detroit many years later. And now there is a new movement emerging among descendants of this original Black agrarian class seeking land justice and social redemption. Some are taking legal action to reclaim lost family land. Some are joining the movement of urban and community farmers trying to reconnect with their roots and build a fairer, more sustainable food system. The butterfly effect in the aftermath of the Elaine massacre can spur speculation on all the what-ifs. What if Black people had held on to their 16 million acres a century ago? How would that have changed the landscape of inequality and wealth today if Black folks had been able to stay in the South and accumulate wealth within those communities? How would we view Black labor differently if the potential for Black farming enterprises had not been brutally cut short by racist violence? Currently, Brown notes that academics have begun to estimate the loss of wealth over the generations due to systematic land theft and discrimination, and that research is fueling a very important debate over reparations across the country. But there are some things that are just immeasurable. That's why the radical impulse of the progressive farmers and household union should be remembered, and why it's still inspiring people today. Those farmers knew their true value as citizens and human beings, and simply wanted to be made whole. And that is all for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Natasha Lewis and Colin Kinneborough. And remember, if you want to support our independent labor journalism and our small, overworked and underpaid production team, you should go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. You can also support Descent Magazine by subscribing or becoming a sustaining member. You can go to descentmagazine.org. And you can also go there to find the archives of all of our old episodes, going back nearly 10 years at this point. And of course, we do want to hear from you as well. If you're a mental health worker who's just about had enough of understaffing at your clinic, if you're a Trader Joe's worker or a Starbucks worker hoping to contribute to the emerging wave of union organizing in the food and retail sector, and if you are a delivery worker or any other kind of worker who is struggling with all these crushing heat waves that we're experiencing this summer, get in touch. You can reach us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or... You can find us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks, over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go.
You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.